Turn, please, in your Bible to Revelation chapter 5, the last book in your Bible. If you're new here, you're a guest, there should be Bibles right underneath the chair in front of you. Revelation is the very last book of your Bible. Turn to chapter 5. Just hold your finger there. We're going to be there in just a minute. Revelation chapter 5. Now, I don't fly very often, but when I do... I typically go to some tried-and-true sites to book my flight, Expedia, Travelocity, Kayak. But I always check out Southwest. Why Southwest? Well, for one, I really like their marketing. You've seen the commercials, right? Something awkward or stressful is happening, and they just ask a simple question, right? Want to get away? I like that. <laughs> I like their marketing. I like their flight attendants. Almost every flight that I've ever been on, almost everybody on the plane is totally tuned out for the safety spiel. I've been on Southwest flights where the, the stewardess or the flight attendant basically gets a standing O for the safety spiel. Right? They've, they've figured out how to take something dreadfully boring, incredibly important, but dreadfully boring, and they've put new life into it. I, I like their flight attendants. Marketing and flight attendants are not Southwest's main thing. Their main thing is being the low-cost airline. That's their main thing, and I like that. Years ago, the CEO at the time, his name is Herb Kelleher, he described the company's commitment to this principle. Being the low-cost airline was the driving force behind every decision that he made. So Tracy comes in from marketing into Herb's office. She says to her boss, hey, surveys indicate that passengers would really enjoy a light entree on a Houston to Vegas flight, but all we offer is peanuts. I think it would be really popular if we offered a light entree, a chicken Caesar salad. I think people will really enjoy that. So Herb says, Tracy... Will offering that chicken Caesar salad make us the low fare airline from Houston to Vegas? Because if that salad does not make us become the unchallenged low airfare line, then we're not serving any darn chicken salad. Herb did not say darn. <laughs> Thriving companies like Southwest. They don't drift into success. They're intentional. They're focused. They've read Stephen Covey. They know that the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And in the same way, brothers and sisters, Christians, thriving Christians and thriving churches do not drift into maturity into faithfulness, into fruitfulness. We must know that the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. The main thing is Jesus and the good news that he's done to rescue sinners. Today we're continuing in our preaching series called Gospel Culture. Now, 
In order to have a gospel culture, there's important elements, just like any other culture. A gospel culture must have a vision, a mission, and values. Our vision, this should sound familiar to most, if not all of you, our vision is to love God, love one another, and love the world. That's our vision. That's what we want to see. Our vision is to reach people with the gospel, build them up in the gospel, and release them with the gospel. That's our mission, what we want to do. What are our values? As disciples, what do we want to be characterized by? Our values are who we want to be. So for the next several weeks, we're going to be unpacking these values. And let me provide some context for you, okay? Because these values did not just come out of nowhere. They're not randomly selected. About a year ago, the elders sat in a room right down the hall, and we answered two questions. First question. If you could clone a mature, healthy, thriving partner of Brandywine Grace and fill the whole church with them, who would that be? Second question, why would you choose that person? What characterizes them? What values do they embody? It was awesome. It was so fun to do that exercise. So many of your names were mentioned. We could have done this for hours, just mentioning names and, and what stands out about you all. And, and eventually we had to stop and we wrote names, literally wrote names on a whiteboard and then wrote the characteristics, the values that you embody. And eventually we stopped and we said, okay, how can we categorize these values? And Eventually, we narrowed in to seven values. These are the values that we're going to be preaching through. Now, why did we do that? Why did we go about doing it that way? Because we believe that God is the one who makes a gospel culture. This isn't us doing this. And so what as elders we're trying to do and leaders, what we're trying to do is we're trying to discern where is God at work and how do we join him there? These are the values that we see the Spirit of God embodying in the lives of God's people, and we want to continue to join with what God is doing and pursue these together. These are our core values. And when we stop and try to observe what God is doing, the first thing that we notice is a Christ-centeredness. A Christ-centeredness. Now, you've all been wondering, what in the world is up with the block tower? What are we doing here? Each week when we preach on a core value, the symbol of that core value is going to be revealed on these boxes. It's awesome. <laughs> I, cannot, like, I am, I'm giddy with excitement, and I am so thankful. This stuff just doesn't happen, right? Like there are so many people. I just have to thank you guys. So Rachel Abbott. Laura Eberly, Rich Frank, Don Cole, Amy Lynch, Dana Parker, Vicki Russell, Jeff Sheldon, Chris Wilburn, Courtney Zahn, Carol Zilmer. You guys are awesome. I love you because you love this church. And you guys have done an incredible job getting us ready for this series. Now remember Southwest, okay? Let's go back to the main point. Remember Southwest. Thriving companies are intentional, and this is my main point. 
Thriving Christians and thriving churches must intentionally be Christ-centered. Thriving Christians and thriving churches must intentionally be Christ-centered. Now, sadly, this is not a given. Even though the church should be Christ-centered, oftentimes she's not Christ-centered. I mean, all we need to do is simply read our Bibles, read church history, look around. The fact of the matter is is that God's people are prone to getting off-center. We're constantly pressured, we're, we're distracted, we're threatened, we're bombarded day after day. It's a deluge of information. If you've been a Christian for one day, you know how hard it is to keep Jesus at the center of your life. Is that not true? It's hard. So if we're going to thrive, if we're going to flourish, if we're going to mature as Christians, as a church, as a gospel culture, we have to be intentionally Christ-centered. So how do we do that? I'm going to talk about some of the hows, but first we need to have a real crystal clear understanding of why. Why are we supposed to be Christ-centered? Three reasons. I'm going to offer you three reasons this morning. Jesus is worthy of it. The Bible commands it, and the world needs it. Why should we be Christ-centered? Three reasons. Jesus is worthy of it, the Bible commands it, and the world needs it. We're going to look at each one of these in turn. Now, you should be in Revelation 5. If you've ever wondered what heaven is like, this is a snapshot. The Apostle John is the author of Revelation, and he's writing of the vision that he has as he sees God sitting on his throne. This is what John writes, chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. John sees God sitting on his throne, the king over all. And in his right hand, he holds a scroll. This is the divine will of the king, the law of the land. God's plan for his people. But no one is worthy to unopen the scroll, to unlock it. No one's worthy to execute the king's orders. No one's worthy to carry out God's plan for his people. So John weeps. We're doomed. We're separated. We're cut off from God. He's unknowable. He's unapproachable. His love, his grace, his mercy, his salvation, it's closed off to us. We're unfit. We're unworthy to be in his presence. We're sinners. Nothing can fix this. This cannot be undone. We're damned. 
That's why John's weeping. And then these beautiful words, weep no more. Weep no more, you hopeless. Weep no more, you guilty. Weep no more, you who are unworthy to be in the presence of God. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. There's only one worthy. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Do you see what is happening here? There's a grand entrance. There's an unusual image. A lamb who'd been slain. A symbolic reference to Jesus Christ who was crucified on a Roman cross. A death that ransomed or set free unworthy men and women, sinners, you and I, enslaved to sin and eternally damned to hell. And notice every eye of every creature everywhere in existence is centered in one place, on one person, Jesus, the Lamb. Because he laid down his life as a sacrifice for sins, he's the only one worthy to be front and center. Why should we be Christ-centered? Jesus is worthy of it. There's only one worthy of all creation that has ever existed for all of eternity to be worshipped Forever and ever. Why should we be Christ-centered? Because Jesus is worthy of it. Friends, we have to be very careful and very intentional about what we worship. Novelist David Wallace said this, Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. Feel like you never have enough. 
Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you from your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is they're unconscious. They are default settings. We have to be so careful and intentional with what we worship. Now, as I've been studying and praying, I have really, the Lord has laid teens and college age kids on my heart this week. Probably because five of them are in my house. <laughs> Sincerely, I've had, I've had that group of people on my heart. And here's why. This quote that I just read was from a college commencement speech. So David was talking to kids in that age range. And shortly after he spoke those words, he tragically took his own life. Now, I don't know anything about David Wallace or, or the demons he faced. I don't know. I don't know if he was a Christian, and I certainly don't believe that because he wasn't a Christian, he took his own life. That's not at all what I'm saying. I'm sober because he was trying to get this message to young people. I'm sober because he personally, based on his words and his experience, he personally wrestled with the issue of worship. Be careful what you worship. If you worship the wrong thing, it will eat you alive. We're not joking around here. We all have hopes, don't we? We all have dreams, things that we look forward to, and they vary from person to person. But generally speaking, don't we all kind of hope for the same things? Achievement, success, popularity, acceptance, stability. And we all have fears, things we're afraid of, all of us. Death, crisis, vulnerability, the loss of control, discomfort, loneliness. So what do we do? We center our lives on the things that we think will deliver us to our hopes and protect us from our fears. We all do this. So we center our lives on money because we believe it will offer us stability and security. We center our lives on power because never again will I be taken advantage of. We center our lives on beauty because finally I'll be paid attention to. We center our lives on sex because at least for a little while I can escape and feel good. And once we center our lives on things that hurt us, we're on our way to crazy. One of the constant battles in our house, I'm sure none of you can relate to this. Phone chargers. This is my laptop charger. And if you can see it, it's got my name Sharpie, but that's gone now. So what I've resorted to, or my wife really, has a label. Some painter's tape. 
It says dad, AKA Jason. <laughs> Every charger is labeled in our house. Some of them with Sharpie. Some of them with Sharpie scribbled on top of Sharpie. So you don't know whose it is. And trust me, you already know this. After thorough interrogation, nobody knows who Sharpie the charger. So hypothetically speaking, I've got to preach on a Sunday morning and my iPad is dead. No chargers to be found. They've all mysteriously disappeared. And let's say in desperation, I jam this laptop charger into my iPad. I got to have it charged. I got to have what I need. What do I do? I mess all kinds of things up. Because this charger was not designed for this device. And I'm telling you, you and I are jamming all kinds of things into our hearts that have no business belonging there. And we're messing a lot of things up, friends. Stability, security, acceptance, belonging, protection, a clean slate, life on the other side of tragedy. We're looking for all the right things in all the wrong places. And I tell you, there's only one place. There's only one person. His name is Jesus. That's where all of the things that we're out there looking for, they're ultimately found in him. I told you that we listed out some names of partners, and one of the names that we listed was Shelly Yost. I love Shelly. And more importantly, Shelly loves Jesus. And I think if we were to ask Shelly, Shelly, how do you do that? Like, how do you actually practically be a Christ-centered person. I think she would probably say something like this. I spend time with Jesus. I just spend time with him. Every day I read his word. I pray about everything. I spend time with his people. I try to love other people imperfectly, but I try to love other people the way Jesus has loved me. And I've learned, and Shelley has known this, I've learned in good times and in bad I trust in Jesus. I stay close with him. How do we become Christ-centered people? How do we do it? We, we spend time with them. Because what you love, you will naturally spend time doing. It's so true. And what you spend time doing will eventually shape the life that you lead. If we spend hours scrolling Instagram and Snapchat and watching YouTube and consuming news on current events, the stock market, binge-watching Apple TV, our lives are shaped by what we give our time and attention to. That's how it works. And so if you're going to be Christ-centered, if I'm going to be Christ-centered, you have to spend time in his word. You have to pray about everything. We've got to spend time with his people. We've got to try to love others the way Jesus has loved us. We've got to be like Shelley. That's how we cultivate a Christ-centeredness. If we're going to thrive as a church and as Christians, we must intentionally be Christ-centered. The first reason is that Jesus is worthy of it. Secondly, the Bible commands it. 
Why should we be Christ-centered? Because the Bible commands it. Now, there's a lot of different Bible texts that we can go to. For the time, for the time's sake, let's just consider two. First, look at Luke chapter 24. We're bouncing around a little bit today. This will be on the screen. Don't worry about having to get there too quickly. Luke chapter 24. At this point in Luke's gospel, Jesus has risen from the dead. And he's walking with two of his disciples on the way to a town called Emmaus. But they don't know it's Jesus. You guys know this story. Okay, they just think he's an ordinary guy, and they're recounting to Jesus the things that have happened in Jerusalem over the last several days. And when they get done telling Jesus all that they want to tell him, Jesus says this, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he had interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So here we see Jesus' hermeneutic, what he understands the Bible to be saying, the way that he interprets his Bible. And when he says Moses and all the prophets, that's shorthand for the whole Old Testament, the Bible that he had at that time. So while they're walking, Jesus is pointing out from all portions of the Old Testament all of the things that spoke about the Messiah, his suffering and his resurrection. In other words, he showed them how the Old Testament was Christ-centered. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, Chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Again, this will be on the screen, so don't panic that you're not there yet. Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that, that's Peter, then to the twelve. So of all the issues, and there were lots of them, Kenny referenced them last week, right? Of all the issues in the church at Corinth that Paul was trying to address, he says there's only one that rises to the level of first importance. The gospel, the good news of what Jesus did to rescue sinners. So under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul teaches us that Jesus' death for sins, his burial, and his resurrection is the matter of first importance. The Bible commands us to be Christ-centered. Now, one of the things I love about this church is its growing humility. It was with a bunch of leaders last week, last Sunday afternoon, and one of them just came out with it, just put it right out there. I got to deal with my love of money. The love of money keeps me from being Christ-centered. So I think, as I survey our church, we're growing in discerning where we're off-center. 
But as a church, I'd say we have room to grow in discerning something much more subtle. Something that on the surface seems much more noble. Something that causes us to take our eye off the ball. And that thing is the fixation on other important, even biblical topics. How Christians should be involved in politics. The church's role in the pro-life movement. Racial reconciliation. Education. What the Bible teaches about marriage, parenting, and singleness. What music we should and shouldn't listen to. What movies we should and shouldn't watch. Sexuality. The roles of men and women. Engaging with the LGBTQ plus community. The different views on creation, the inspiration of scripture, the end times. And you know as well as I do, I could keep going. Now I've heard the arguments and I truly I am with you. So are you saying that we should only ever talk about Jesus and bury our heads in the sand when it comes to the real issues that affect us on a day-to-day basis? Isn't it the church's responsibility to disciple its members on responding to and engaging with the culture? Doesn't the gospel have something to say to each and every single one of these issues? The gospel does have something to say. It is the church's responsibility. And no, we should not bury our heads in the sand. My point is that many professing Christians claim to be Christ-centered, but their lives show that they are centered on other topics, and we are not immune to this. What truly captures our hearts and attention is not the gospel, and it's not Jesus. It's something else. And I would love to believe that we, were ne- we as a church would never become one that would completely eclipse Jesus and the gospel. But then I read my Bible and I see in Revelation 20 this very thing happening. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, I was taught years ago to use this verse in evangelism, and I get it. We're supposed to invite people into a relationship with Jesus. But this text is not an invitation to non-believers. Jesus is talking to the first century church of Laodicea. The door that Jesus is knocking at is not the door of the unbeliever's heart. The door that Jesus is knocking at is the front door of the church. And the place where he should be front and center has kicked him to the curb. Rich, prosperous, well-dressed, and probably well-meaning women, that's you and that's me, centered their lives on all kinds of things other than Jesus. And friends, I'm telling you, if we are not intentional, 
we'll do the same exact thing. The church in America has experienced a major shift. Study after study, statistic after statistic proves this. People have migrated to churches that teach and preach what they want to hear on important cultural issues. And just as many or more have migrated completely out of the church, they've seen the division, the pettiness, the tribalism, the smug self-righteousness as we debate other issues. And they're like, I'm out of here. Can we really blame them? There's got to be a better way. There must be a better way. A church that is appropriately centered on Christ should be able to openly discuss, debate, and even disagree with each other on important topics. We should be mature enough to understand and learn from one another. God forbid we learn something from somebody else who thinks differently than we do. We should be able to do this without feeling threatened. We should allow one another space and time to ponder and pray and search the Bible so that we can grow in wisdom. We can actually trust the Holy Spirit instead of trying to act like Him in other people's lives. And we can do this because what unites us is far more important and primary than what divides us. I'll be honest with you guys. I'm not a part of this church because everyone shares my political persuasion. I'm not a part of this church because everyone agrees with me on how best to defend the rights of the unborn. I'm not a part of this church because we're all equally convinced that our kids should be homeschooled or private schooled or public schooled. I'm a part of this church because we're committed to rallying around the matter of first importance. Jesus and Him crucified. I'm a part of this church because we're striving to be Christ-centered. Is that why you're a part of this church? Because if not, I'm telling you right now, you're going to be disillusioned really fast. You're going to be disappointed with us. You're not going to get what you want. But what we are resolved to do at Brandywine Grace is to preach Christ crucified just like our Bibles command us to do. Now, I'm not picking a fight with anybody. I truly, I'm truly not picking a fight here. We know that election season is coming, okay? As pastors, we might not be the sharpest in the drawer, but we know that election season is upon us. And we want to do a better job at providing context where we can engage over the issues. Not just politics, but a whole host of issues. So in April, i got to do something with that, don't I? We needed a little air anyways, right? It's got a little serious in here. In April, what we're going to do is we're going to do a three-part series called First Things. It's going to be at the church, three Sundays in April, and we're going to, it's going to be some teaching, and it's going to be discussion, okay? Not just teaching, but also time to engage over important secondary issues, issues that are very important. But what we're going to try to do is keep the main thing, the main thing, and allow the gospel to inform how we deal with the things that we might not all see the same way. Okay, so keep your eyes and ears open. There, that's going to be three classes in April called 
the first things. We should be Christ-centered, though, because the Bible commands it. But we're, no church is perfect in this, and we're not an exception. Okay? But what we're trying to do is that we're ensuring, we're trying to ensure that all of our discipleship here, whether we're teaching or preaching on a Sunday morning, identifying and sending out missionaries, discipleship classes, small groups, men's ministry, women's ministry, kids' ministry, all of it, is it centered on Christ? We're trying to ensure that that's what our discipleship is about. Why should we be Christ-centered? Jesus is worthy of it. The Bible commands it. And lastly, the world needs it. Now, when I say the world, I certainly mean unbelievers, right? People who don't yet follow or believe in Jesus. Our family, our friends, our neighbors, unreached people groups of the world. But I also mean us, because we're a part of the world, aren't we? Aren't we? Okay. All right. So if we who are God's people are supposed to be Christ-centered, but we're calloused to the gospel, if we're overly familiar with the gospel, if we're bored of it and eager to move on to other doctrines, so if we're not being continually transformed by the gospel, how can we expect to give the world what it needs? I want to read you this text. This is a true story. This is a story from one of my friends whose brother-in-law is in the U.S. Navy. And they're going through their morning routine. Every morning they do the same thing. You know how the military is, right? So they're, they're about to be inspected. And this is what he writes. Dang, man, this water bottle. He writes this, I was in the second company to get inspected. So the first company is being inspected over here. We're waiting for them to finish, and we're just standing at parade rest for 20 minutes. I'm the first person in the first row. And the first thing you do is you give the chief who squares off with you the greeting of the day. Good morning, chief. I don't know what I was thinking, but I stalled and gave him just enough time to think I forgot. Am I not worthy to give the greeting of the day to? What did I do to make you disrespect me like this? So I give the greeting of the day. But he keeps criticizing me. So in a knee-jerk way, I saluted him, which was dumb, because you're not supposed to do that. So he kept criticizing me. He's checking over my uniform, making sure I've got the anchor pins in the right places and that I've de-threaded the uniform. The next thing that happens is he tests my knowledge. He could have asked me anything. White, you like to sing? Yes, I do, chief. He tells me to sing the first verse of Anchors Away. Now, just so you know, whenever anybody is asked to sing, they just mumble the words to get them out. That's the point, to show that you've memorized the words. I belt it. <laughs> Sang it really well. Chief Davis was basically taken aback. Right after I started singing, I knew I was possibly in trouble because this was pretty outside the norm. But I was committed. When I finished, he says, White, you sing like an angel. 
You sing in church? Yes, chief, occasionally. Whenever you want to work off a demerit, you come and sing it off. At the end of the whole event, this is a true story. I'm literally reading in the text. At the end of the whole event, our class officer marches us off and he asks us all, Hey, who's got the pipes? White, eh? Anchors away. This is the fight song of the Naval Academy and a common march song for this company of men. They've probably sung it and recited it hundreds, if not thousands of times. But on special occasions, it hits different. Something root, routine, something that you memorize just to keep from getting a demerit, it comes alive. And every Christian I know, without exception, needs that to happen in your heart and in your mind every day. We need the gospel to come alive to us. We need it to hit different. We need to be taken aback like Chief Davis was. We need renewal. We need revival. Now, some of you, when I speak in that way, that's unfamiliar language, and some of you are probably freaked out. Revival might conjure up bad memories for you. Hellfire and brimstone service, service, emotionalism, strange church things that get out of control. That's not what I'm talking about. When I say renewal and revival, this is what I have in mind. Tim Keller says, gospel renewal or revival is an intensification of the normal operations of the Spirit. These are the normal operations of the Spirit. Conviction of sin, regeneration and sanctification, assurance of grace. Through the ordinary means of grace, which are preaching the word, prayer, and the sacraments. In other words, renewal is when there's an intensification in the people who say they believe the gospel, are actually and continually transformed by the gospel, shaped by it. The gospel's hitting different. We're being honest about our sin. We're making attempts to repent. We're growing in our trust and our assurance in Christ. It's then that we're finally positioned to take the gospel to the world who needs it. If we're not convinced by it, they definitely won't be. Think of the biblical examples of renewal and revival. Reluctant Jonah and the Ninevites. Isaiah's vision of God. His repentance and revived commitment to do whatever and go wherever the Lord commanded him. Peter's preaching at Pentecost. Renewal is a rediscovery of the gospel in the church. And revival is when that renewal and Christ-centeredness spreads to our neighbors, to the nations, and to all the people groups of the world because it's the unstoppable power of God. You can't contain it. Isn't that what the world needs? Rediscovery is both revolutionary and convicting. Because when you look at the times when the church has been at her best, it's always been when she's rediscovered the gospel. Always. When she's reclaimed her Christ-centeredness. 
through preaching and prayer and small group studies, observing the sacraments, confession, repentance, the power of God and the presence of God comes to bear on his people. And it's uncontainable. That's what the world needs. She needs us to actually believe and be transformed by the gospel that we say that we believe in. Rediscovery is also convicting because it should humble us. Rediscovery, what does it mean but that the church has lost something? If we've rediscovered something, it means that we first lost it. The, the world, what the world needs, guys, is for the church to stop losing the only message that contains the power of God for salvation. So how do we do that? Well, as a church, we've got to be like Paul. Paul decided to do nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And we've got to do that in our everyday lives. We've got to preach the gospel to ourselves, and we've got to preach it to one another. We never need more than the gospel. We always need more of the gospel. Simple tool that we can use. I've used this in my life. It's, it's very basic and very simple, but it will keep you centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ and the gospel like no other simple book I know. A gospel primer. You can get this on Amazon. This is what the world needs. It needs Christians who are christ Centered, And there's only one thing powerful enough to keep us Christ-centered, and it's the gospel. My main point, again, is this. Thriving Christians and thriving churches must be intentionally Christ-centered. A thriving gospel culture remembers that the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Jesus is worthy of it, the Bible commands it, and the world desperately needs it. So I want to close now with just a simple time of reflection. As the band returns, I'd like each of us just to take a minute and to consider. Honestly, before God, have you ever truly made Jesus the center of your life? Have you responded to the gospel? Have you repented of sin and looked to nothing that you yourself can do and trusted only in the work of Jesus Christ, his bloodshed on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins? Have you received the gift of God's salvation? I invite you to do that. More importantly, Jesus invites you to do that right here, right now. Others of us might need to recommit to making Christ the center of our lives. Other things have crowded him out. So let's take a moment just to ask for his forgiveness. And before we start moving and bustling about, let's ask him to renew us by his grace. Just take a minute now and respond however the Lord is leading you to respond.